Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by the Feminist Press, publisher of Fiebre Tropical by Juliana Delgado Lopera. It is a coming-of-age tale, it is a coming-out tale, set in immigrant Miami. NBC News calls Delgado Lopera, quote, a merciless satirist in control of a pitch-perfect voice. That's Fiebre Tropical by Juliana Delgado Lopera, available now from the Feminist Press. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. This is The Other People Podcast. I have Garth Greenwell on the program today. He was here not too long ago. He came over. Oh, did I forget to mention that I'm in Los Angeles? I'm in Los Angeles. This show is coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Garth Greenwell is my guest. His new book, is it a story collection? Is it a novel? I think it's autofiction. What is it? It's called Cleanness. It's available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. It is the hotly anticipated follow-up to Greenwell's debut novel, What Belongs to You, which won the British Book Award for Best Debut. It was long-listed for the National Book Award. It was a finalist for the Penn Faulkner and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, among others. So Cleanness is now available from FSG, and it has been getting rave reviews. Garth Greenwell and his new book, Cleanness, that conversation is coming up in just a moment. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Counseling. Is there something in your life that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. You can connect with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's very convenient. You can get help on your own time at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. These are licensed professional counselors who are specialized in things like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, trauma, sleep, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQ matters, grief, self-esteem, you name it. Anything you share is confidential. And if you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time. No additional charge. There are 3,000 United States licensed therapists across all 50 states. 
waiting to talk to you. Not all 3,000 of them, but one of them is a perfect match, and that person can help you. This service is also available worldwide. There, again, are four communication modes, text, chat, phone, and video. Start communicating with a therapist in under 24 hours. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. This is a safe, secure, convenient, professional, affordable service. Please note that it is not a crisis line. Best of all, it is a truly affordable option. Other people with Brad Listy listeners get 10% off your first month with the discount code other people. That's other PPL, all one word. So why not get started? Go to betterhelp.com slash other PPL. Simply fill out a questionnaire, help them assess your needs, and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash other PPL. Okay. A listener named Chris uh, wrote to me. I do have some mail here. A listener named Chris writes, Brad, I heard that you quit Twitter. Good for you. I quit social media completely almost two years ago. It's been great. I read more and get stressed out less. After a few weeks, I also began to realize how much of my downtime was dedicated to scrolling. For example, waiting in line, being on an elevator, using the bathroom, sitting in traffic, etc., I'm probably telling you something you already know, but I 100% suggest carrying a notebook and a book book with you at all times. Get a side satchel or a dad bag, whatever works. I went from reading 40 books a year to reading 110 just by using these down moments. In solidarity, Chris. Thank you, Chris. I uh, do not carry a notebook. I still keep notes in my phone, though I'm open to changing. I also do not own uh, a side satchel or a dad bag. The truth is that I'm really not that good at shopping or knowing what kind of things to get. I'm not good at accessorizing. I wear my pajamas every day, all day. Uh, I wouldn't know which dad bag to get. I don't even know who makes dad bags or side satchels. So if you're out there and you're listening and you're thinking to yourself, I know the perfect dad bag for Brad Listy, you can email me with your recommendations at letters at otherppl.com. I wonder if I could get into that. Like, would I, would I actually use it? It's worth a try. I have thought about it before. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories 
by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest again is Garth Greenwell. His new book, Cleanness, is available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. I had such a nice time meeting him and talking with him. He is just as eloquent in person as he is on the page. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Here he is, folks. This is Garth Greenwell, and his new book, One More Time, is called Cleanness. When I teach students, when I teach prose writing, uh, style is something we talk about a lot because it is something I care about a lot. And something that I say is that I think, like, um, style that's functioning at a, at a high level, like, what that means is that it gives the impression of, like, a whole life condensed to a voice. And when I talk to my students about how to improve as stylists, I mean, we do talk about mechanical sort of technical things, but I actually think style is the least willed part of being a writer. And I think if you try to engineer it, it can sound very artificial. It can sound like someone trying to, you know, put on a British accent or something. Um, But I do think there are things you can do to try to open your style up to kind of more of the languages, the influences, um, the aesthetics that sort of make up your life. And for me, my first education in art was in classical music as a singer. My second education- Like opera? Yeah, I studied opera. Um, A high school choir teacher in my public high school in Kentucky heard something in my voice and gave me voice lessons after school when I was 14 and um, introduced me to opera and gave me art. And that was really the thing that um, really allowed me to escape a really, um, I mean, a world that didn't want me to exist. Wait, Kentucky. Where in Kentucky was this? So I had kind of a split childhood. I was in school in Louisville, um, but then my family farm, tobacco farm, is in a tiny little place called Sonora, Kentucky. And that's where we spent weekends and summers and all of that. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, Kentucky in the late 80s, early 90s, pre-internet was not a great place to be a queer kid. And I was a really lost kid. And then this guy in this act of extraordinary generosity um, gave me art. And that's what allowed me to find a world where I could sort of exist, where I felt like I did have a place. And uh, and after music, my, my second education in art was in poetry. And all of my literary education was in poetry. And for 20 years, I was writing poetry um, and never thinking about writing fiction. Um, And so when I started writing my first novel, What Belongs to You, um, I was living in Sofia, Bulgaria, teaching high school there. And, um, you know, I started writing these sentences. I didn't think of it as writing a novel. I thought of it as writing sentences. And I had never... I had no idea how to write prose. Um, I had never written creative prose, imaginative prose. And I think I wrote with the tools of a poet. Um, but, and know. also musical. And also musical. I mean, all of my ideas of narrative, of tension, of structure are musical and operatic. And that's for better and for worse. Um, but my sense, you know, when I feel like structurally a 
piece of writing isn't working, um, what I turn to are sort of musical analogies. Like I will feel not that there's some gap in plot or some gap in character development. I will feel like there's a chord missing in this, you know, harmonic progression and, um, or teaching Virginia Woolf. I was just teaching Virginia Woolf the other day, um, uh, Mrs. Dalloway. And I, you know, the only analogy that made sense to me for how she uses POV and how she jumps between consciousnesses was sort of tonal and harmonic, you know, and sort of like the harmonic language of Debussy is how I think of, of, of her use of POV. That's just the, you know, it's just the education that I had. It's just what I turned to, but that does mean that sort of, um, music rhythm, a sense of the materiality of language, a sense of language, a sense of syntax as expressive, you know, I mean, singing opera um, is a kind of extraordinary education in the emotional potential of, of suspending language in time. I mean, many opera arias are very few words sung over, you know, great distances. And um, I think my attraction to a very expansive syntax um, comes in large part from that. But you said, you know, and you said earlier that the style is the least willed part of the process, which makes sense because it's, it's just kind of at some level, it's just what comes out of you if you're writing from your natural self and you're not posing. Yeah. Or it's it's or it's what feels right. You know, and this is, all, again, a tricky thing when it comes to teaching. I'm thinking a lot about teaching. I, I don't have a regular teaching job, but I'm teaching this semester as a visiting professor. And um so I'm thinking a lot about teaching and it's a difficult thing when it comes to teaching because, you know, it has been very important to my life as a writer. The fact that um, like scholarship has been important to my life. Criticism has been important to my life. Like, like writing criticism. Writing criticism. I write, um, you know, I write about literature and I write about literature in quite analytical ways. Like I love taking apart a sentence and seeing how the syntax works. And I do think that that's a kind of important training in being a writer, like doing that to other people's sentences, sort of constantly taking apart these engines and then seeing how they're put together. But then when I'm writing, it feels very important to me to kind of shut that down. And my role when I'm a writer I don't have to understand any of that stuff about my own sentences. I just have to keep working them until they feel right, you know, and it's that feeling right that matters. And then it's somebody else's job if they feel moved to, you know, take up, take that apart and figure out why does that feel right to this particular writer in this particular writer's aesthetic world. But that's not my job. And, you know, I do think if I, if I tried to be aware of the kinds of things I look for when I'm analyzing other people's sentences, I think I'd be paralyzed as a writer. Yeah. Yeah. You do. I mean, yeah, you can't bring all that to the table when you're trying to do your own stuff. I think it's a lot. It would be a lot, but, but it's there, you know? And I mean, one example I give, like, so a deep belief of mine about art making is that when one is making art well, like good art is smarter than the artist that made it. And, you know, I, I believe this with sort of my whole heart, but then the question is, well, okay. Um, but then what is that other intelligence? Like, what is that? Because I don't, you know, it's not like Milton for me thinking like the Holy ghost is whispering into somebody's <laughs> ear. Like, I, I don't believe that. That's how you know? I feel when I'm podcasting. By yeah, exactly. You know, right. right um, I mean, I wish, I wish I had that sense of 
sort of divine dictation, but I really don't. Like, it feels like work. It feels like I'm working when I write. But there is this other intelligence. And in part, it is the intelligence of language and the intelligence of certain traditions within that language. So that, you know, if you have studied a tradition and steeped yourself in a tradition and a certain use of English, then I think it is true that language gets magnetized in a certain way. Sentences have a tendency to want to move in a certain way. If you've read as much Henry James as I have, then I think that you get a sense of ways that sentences can move. And that becomes like a little force of magnetism that exerts itself on your own sentences. If you're writing poems, rhyme is like this. Rhyme, I think, um, you know, when I read W.H. Auden, you know, these extraordinary poems in which um, the rhymes articulate kind of a parallel or contrary argument to whatever the poet is, whatever the poem is saying, you know, that's the language thinking. Or, you know, it was a big surprise to me when I was reading from What Belongs to You. And, and reading aloud is a big part of my composition practice. It's a huge part of my revision practice. But it wasn't until I read in front of audiences that I started realizing that certain lines in my prose are iambic pentameter. That was not intended. That was not something I was conscious of. I don't count syllables when I'm writing prose, but it is true that um, because of instruction I got from my first poetry teacher, I spent two years writing, um, only writing poems in unrhymed iambic pentameter. And those rhythms are just in my blood. Yeah. It sounds like what you're describing is uh, the subconscious. Well, I think language has a subconscious. Yeah. I think that's true. And that subconscious is not just my subconscious. It's also like what Milton did to the language, what Shakespeare did to the language, what Dickinson did to the language, you know? I mean, that then all becomes part of the subconscious, not my subconscious, which is also, of course, functioning in the text in all sorts of ways, but the subconscious of the language. And that's fascinating. And then writing becomes this you know, much of the art of writing, I think, is so there are all of these little magnetisms in language, you know, ways that you're drawn towards or away from certain moves. And then much of the art is sort of managing, do you acquiesce to the pleasure of that magnetism or do you resist it? You know, do you have the alternative pleasure of kind of wrestling the sentence away from where it wants to go? Um, but that's, you know, that is as important to me as whatever subject I'm writing about. Mm. And it makes sense too, with your musical background that you would read aloud as part of your revision, that the, like the actual sound of the language, like as it's spoken would help you refine. Oh, I, I mean, I think that's so essential to any writer. Like, I mean, uh, well, to me, I mean, the thing that makes the difference between, you know, writing as a kind of, um, what as a kind of um, tool in writing as an art, you know, um, writing that's concerned with function and then writing that's concerned with art. The difference between that um, is, I think, a sense of the materiality of language, of language as a medium, not as something transparent that exists only for us to pour our thoughts into and communicate, but something that exists with its own materiality, with its own potentials for beauty or for drama or for pathos. 
Um, that to me is just what it means to try to make art in the medium of language. Hmm. Um, I want to talk to you. It seems like everybody you've talked to in interviews from the ones that I've been reading online, um, very quickly gets to the subject of writing about sex, right? which, um, your work is concerned with. And I'll tell you, this is kind of a funny story. Uh, I got your book, your publisher sent me a copy and it had like the, you know, the paper inside. Mm -hmm. uh, I have not yet read uh, what belongs to you, but so this is my introduction to your work. Right. I kind of like looked at the paper for a second, but I was in a hurry. I wanted to start reading. And sometimes I like to just go in cold. Sure. So I think I read a few of the blurbs. I read like the Sheila Hetty blurb. So I had some sense that there was going to be um, sex in the book. But I wasn't, I, I kind of went in blind for the most part. And it was like, wow. Uh, this guy's this guy's having sex. This is happening. <laughs> it, 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 like what Sheila says, you know, I think she said something to the effect of most American literature feels neutered by comparison, like the honesty and the reality of the sex uh, as you describe it on the page. And I should also say this is gay male sex, mm. which is maybe less uh, frequently represented mm. uh, or is less frequently represented on the page. Um, but just in general, like that experience of reading uh, about sex, the act of sex, the reality of sex in uh, literature, in language that is that beautifully rendered and that relentless is unique. Mm, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Um, and I, I guess like the question then would be um, like, why? Like what, like what draws you to this as subject matter um, and... Like, how do you conceive of what the effect um, might be as you're in the act of like drafting and conceiving of your um, your fictions? So I have a lot of thoughts about that um, because you know writing about sex, there's such a weird prejudice against it in Anglo-American practice. Um, it's a prejudice that I don't fully understand. It seems to me so bizarre to say as many often quite brilliant writers and readers say um, that sex can't be written well. You know, that's a line that people hear again and again in workshops or every year when they have the bad sex award and the guardian, you know, does that thing, that horrifying ritual of humiliating <laughs> writers, like, you know, this thing that sex can't be written. Well, it just seems to me like the most bizarre thing to sort of say, there's this huge, territory of human feeling and experience that is central to our lives that art can't explore like that it's just wildly wrong like just on the face of it it's absurd you know to me sex is one of the most complicated one of the most densely packed acts of human communication it also it seems to me that um you know it's almost unique in human experience for the way that it engages lots of different kinds of almost paradoxes that really fascinate me or sort of interlocked contradictions. So, I mean, sex seems to me like the place where we are most naked. I mean, literally, but also figuratively most exposed and also where we're our most performative, where we're most aware of ourselves as as performing. Um, it seems to me the place where we are like most thrust into our own experience, our own sensation, and also 
if it's interesting sex, where we are most attuned to the experience and sensation of another. It seems to me the act that sort of makes us most or one of the two or three acts that makes us most aware of our bodies as, you know, animal things. And it's also, I think, the experience that gives us our least dismissible intimations of something in us that exceeds the body or transcends the body. I mean, I think sex is the source of all of our metaphysics. And so, I mean, that just seems so fascinating. Um, and, you know, I am drawn to writing sex. I mean, I think in part it's just my temperament. I think in part it's just, you know, the fact that sex has been so central to so much of my own experience with sociality, so much of my own experience of the identity of queerness. Um, I mean, I started cruising parks in Kentucky when I was 14, and that was like a radically affirmative practice for me, um, a way to experience queerness as joy and not just shame. That's, that's, uh, that's young, I feel like. Am I wrong? Is 14 young to be doing that? I don't think it's that young. It isn't. Um, I think it's a pretty common age uh, for kids to be playing around sexually. Right. and. You know, the, but, but aren't the, the parks that you were cruising frequented by um, like older people? There were a lot of older people there. There were also a few people my age. Oh, okay. um, and, you know, and, and it was, a, you know, um, one summer in particular, like uh, a very dear friendship sort of emerged with someone my age who was cruising the park. Um and like, and that was just, it was a, a wonderfully affirmative thing for me, but it was also like where I learned what queerness could mean, where I learned what queer sociality could be. I am fascinated by forms of queer community and especially of queer male community that um, are based around various kinds of sex. Um, I'm, you know, those are communities of solidarity and communities of extraordinary um, resilience. They're also communities that are productive of art. They're communities that are productive of activism. Um, Can you talk about a specific community like uh, that you have been a part of? Or you, I mean, these are not communities that were an outgrowth of the the park scene in Kentucky that you're talking about. Well, I think they can be, you know, I mean, I, I do think that the, like, so Cherokee park in Louisville, Kentucky, which was where I cruised when I was 14, 15 and 16. Um, you know, I mean, that was my first experience of queer community. You know, there were guys I would hang out with every day. Um, it was also my first experience of queer solidarity, the way that, um, the men who cruised that park, um, would protect each other when there were either police or queer bashers in the park. Um, it was my first sense of a kind of network of solidarity, how that could come together. Um, you know, it was where, you know, the older gay men would give me advice about being a gay man in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, so all of that, you know, but then I think ways that it's productive of, you know, like art making, I mean, if you look at the extraordinary efflorescence of queer art in the late 70s and early 1980s, I mean, much of that art, like if you look at Keith Haring's extraordinarily beautiful mural, which I think is one of the great works of 20th century art, Once Upon a Time, which is in the Lesbian and Gay Community Center in Manhattan in the village. Um, 
I mean, that just emerges directly from the experience of cruising and the experience of a kind of organized gay male promiscuity. Um, when you look at the kinds of networks of care that emerged um, in the face of the early AIDS crisis in places like New York and San Francisco, but also in places like Louisville, um, those off also were often outgrowths of these erotic communities. I mean, ACT UP meetings – um, one of the things that's wonderful when you read uh, firsthand accounts of ACT UP meetings, um, like in David Francis, How to How to Survive a Plague. I, I saw that documentary. It's a great. It's a great documentary. It's a great book. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that he documents is how cruisy, how erotic, how sexy um, those meetings were, and. You know, those meetings were in in some ways a natural outgrowth. Well, look, I mean, where did you get information about AIDS in the early AIDS crisis? Not from the government, not from any sort of official health organization. You got them in the bathhouses. You know, it was in the bathhouses that information was disseminated. The first guides of, you know, safe sex and how people might be able to protect themselves. Those were disseminated in sex clubs and bathhouses and bars, you know, so. This sexual community, a community based around sexual practices, but of course, never exclusively sexual practices because cruising, um, I mean, one of my fundamental beliefs about humanity is that anytime you have a face-to-face -face encounter between two human beings, you have this kind of radical and infinite potential for sociality. And so, of course, when you're cruising, when you have sex with a stranger, there is the possibility for all kinds of affective community to be formed there. Um, so anyway, all of that's so fascinating. It just seems to me obvious that it is something that great books can be written about. Yeah. I mean, you just, you said more eloquently, you just talked more eloquently uh, about sex than just about anybody I've ever hung out with. <laughs> and you can write about it. This is your, this is your topic. Um, but you know what occurs to me? I mean, this is sort of like a silly question or a silly thought, but um, I think back to my youth. I grew up at least partially in Indiana when I was in uh, whereabouts, just up the road in Indianapolis. Oh, got it. Yeah. So I know the terrain that you sure. were in, Kentuckiana. Yeah. Yeah. So, and not an easy place. And I'm of that same era, you know, late '80s, early '90s. Not an easy place to be gay. Yeah. Um, not exactly hospitable, uh, welcoming. So the first question I would have is, I think back to the there was a park um, in my town where people would cruise. I don't think I learned, might've learned about it after I was gone or there was a, I actually had a teacher who was arrested there, sadly. Um, and it was like a story, you know, it was like yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. But who decide? like, there's gotta be, like, how do these things originate? You talk about the communities of, uh, forming, but like who, who's like citizen one. <laughs> yeah. Know, like I mean, that's a question I don't have an answer for. And I wonder if anybody does, but you know, it is true. Like I've lived many different places and um, in almost all of those places, I have found cruising grounds and that has been an important part of my experience of the place. Hmm. So, you know, um, What Belongs to You, my first novel begins in the bathrooms beneath the National Palace of Culture in Sofia. Um which are, is a real place, um, although now um, because they opened a metro stop and so those bathrooms were shut down. But um, 
when I arrived, I remember the first time I went to those bathrooms, um, which I and I went, I was exploring the city with a friend and we needed a bathroom and we saw the sign for these bathrooms. And as we were descending the stairs to them, I knew that there would be men having sex there, not because of anything we saw. There was no one on these stairs. But there was something there was some like chemical signature in the air. I mean, something I recognized. And um, and then that became, you know, in this foreign place um, that allowed me to experience Sophia in a way that like none of my heterosexual colleagues could experience Sophia. You know, there is this wonderful, um, you know, queerness is this wonderful force that. You know, and and I mean, this is romanticizing, but um, I actually think it's okay to romanticize cruising a little bit because it's been demonized so much. But, you know, queerness is this force that can really scramble the usual lines by which we organize our lives. Um, as a kid in Kentucky, um, you know, as a white kid in Kentucky, um, as a white sort of child of newly middle-class parents. Both of my parents grew up in absolute dirt poverty. My father was the first person in his family to go to college. Mine too. Yeah. And so, and it was very important to him that even though we went to the farm every weekend and spent weeks there every summer, that we were not farm kids like he had been. That was so crucial to him. But, you know, as that kind of kid, I mean, my life was organized to um, keep me in a pretty homogeneous social world. Cruising scrambled that, you know, and I got to have intimate affective encounters with all sorts of people that most of my life was organized to keep me from. That's an incredibly powerful thing. And, you know, one of the reasons that what belongs to you, which tells a love story between um, an, an American living in Bulgaria and a younger Bulgarian man you know, one of the reasons that has to start in those bathrooms is because that's almost the only place in the world where these two men could meet. You know, it's like Samuel Delaney, the very brilliant American writer, has a fantastic book called Times Square Red, Times Square Blue um, about cruising in which he talks about how in the 1950s and 60s, as a black man in New York City, the only time he encountered like the only time he spoke to Hasidic Jews was in porn theaters when they would be cruising and they would hook up, you know, this wonderful and, and Samuel Delaney makes, you know, an extraordinary case. And I think an absolutely accurate case for cruising as an essential democratic institution, which is also a case that a little more implicitly Walt Whitman makes in his poems um, that, you know, this um, kind of, subterranean sociality where people from radically different classes, races, nationalities, languages um, can interact, can have face-to-face encounters sort of beyond the gaze of authority. I mean, that to me is a space of real radicality, of radical possibility. And that's one reason why I had to write a novel about it. Um, you know, I think it's just so fascinating. I think it's so fascinating what happens when two people or more than two people have sex in any context. I think it's especially fascinating um, when it is this, I think, very precious queer practice of cruising.
Yeah. I mean, and it's like something that lives or, you know, for the most part lives in the shadows and lives in, you know, for people who don't experience it, they might have an awareness of it. They have no idea what actually happens other than people yeah. having sex. Right. And there's more to it. Like there you've, you've intellectualized it. it. Yeah. Um, and like, um, you know, for me, like made it, um, real. Oh, good. Good. I mean, you know, I, um, you know, as I say, it's a practice that has been so demonized and demonized, not just by kind of mainstream straight culture, but also by a kind of mainstreaming queer culture. Um, you know, I mean, the, the culture of assimilation, the culture of marriage equality, which I'm not anti-marriage equality at all, but, um, you know, the culture of convincing America that gay people are just like them. Um, convincing straight America that gay people are just like them has often demonized cruising. And yet um, to me, you know, it is a space where human beings encounter one another and therefore a space of all of this potential and also a space that is accommodating of the whole range of human affect and a space that is absolutely accommodating of dignity. And, you know, I wanted to write about it in a way that, um, that makes that clear. Well, I mean, you think about why cruising exists. Fourteen-year-old kid in like, suburban Louisville or whatever, in, the, in Kentucky, you can't get into a bar, right? Like, where, where are people going to go? Right. There's not always a bar around, There's depending on where you around. live. Yeah, sure. So it's 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 a it's a, uh, a situation born of necessity. Yeah, it, you know, and I and this is also. You know, a narrative that, um, I mean, I think that's true. I think that you find cruising um, in places where there are not other outlets. What's fascinating to me, though, is that you also find cruising in places where there are other outlets. So, you know, you can be on Ninth Avenue in New York and Midtown in Hell's Kitchen, and you have 17 gay bars in four blocks you can go to. Um, you go two blocks down to seventh Avenue and you have video stores where you can cruise. Hmm. And, you know, so there's a way in which yes, born of necessity, but not just that. I mean, you know, also it's like a really um, useful and effective practice. You know, it, it is um, a wonderful way of organizing the production of pleasure. It's wonderfully ludic. You know, it's not just, you know, I think there is sometimes a way of talking about cruising that wants to see it just as a kind of phenomenon that arises in response to repression. I don't think it's just that. Right. You know, I also think people find positive, I find positive values there that mean I go there I, I enjoy that practice. I find value in that practice that is not just a response to necessity. And there's not like a corollary in the hetero world, or am I missing something? I could be totally blind to it. I mean, I think it is a wonderful gift that queer people could give to straight people if they want it. Here's this brilliant <laughs> we got the practice model. <laughs> that we have invented, and out of the generosity of our hearts, we will give it to you. Well, you we franchise it, you know? You know, I mean, it did. It does seem to me like, I think it's as least, at least as good a model for, I mean, both cruising and then the kinds of friendship networks that queer people 
evolve and chosen family networks that queer people evolve, which often, you know, are made up out of relationships that have been erotic or are sporadically erotic, um, but, you know, that are not concentrated on a kind of monogamous single adult pair bond whose lives are centered on the raising of children. Like, I think um, that queer model is at least as um, successful in the sense of producing happiness as marriage. Hmm. Well, and there's something that strikes me about it is so honest. Like, I think about like the the um, sexual or dating rituals or mate, whatever you want to call it, of uh, hetero uh, crowds. Like, I think back to like going to bars mm. <laughs> and like everyone's there under the pretense of like, oh, I just went to the bar with some friends. But, like, you really just want to meet somebody. Mm. At least some nights you do. There's all this like, uh, there's all this artifice and um, stuff you got to work through until you like drink enough drinks to get enough courage to go talk to somebody. And that doesn't even usually happen, or at least it didn't for me, you know, right. it just seemed like a, a whole lot of nothing. Um, but in the, uh, you know, the cruising, uh, scenes of your youth and beyond and the stuff that you write about in your book, like there's something so naked about it. <laughs> like, you know, like there's no bullshit. And so I can, uh, you know, never having experienced it, but having read your book and listening to you talk, I can imagine how uh, nice it must be to meet people in a space like that, where that artifice is kind of down and you're kind of meeting people as they are intimately, immediately. Mm. <laughs> um, it would, I think, it makes sense to me that it would yield interesting and unique human bonds. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think it is interesting, like what, you know, when one is not invested in, um, the kinds of preliminaries you describe, um, in a kind of heterosexual bar scene, which I mean, also of course exist in queer life, you know, you go to a gay bar, you go through the same things, but you know, the energy that's invested in that, it is interesting to sort of see what else can that energy do? If one doesn't have to invest the energy in that, then what kinds of sociality can happen, um, you know, when sex is not seen as this end you're directing your energies toward, but instead is this beginning? Um, I do think that's interesting. And look, I mean, I like the the least interesting thing in the world to me is the kind of comparison that wants to create hierarchies. Like I want to live in a world where people – where the bonds people elect to make with one another are – as varied as possible and as valued as possible. So to me, like, you know, one thing that, that does dismay me a little bit when I look at um, the queer sort of queer activism in the United States, so much of which has been organized around the question of marriage. Like if the goal of all of this activism turns out to be valuing a marriage that, you know, a model of marriage that is identical to heterosexual marriage as the ideal model for a life, then we have to give up this facade, this, you know, charade that we've been engaged in some project of liberation. Like a project of liberation, a genuine project of liberation has to have as its goal the multiplication of models of life that are seen as valuable and valid and available. Mm. So, you know, I mean, I think... The model of a life that is marriage, which is, 
you know, two people who have chosen each other as the affective, maybe also as the erotic center of their lives, and who have organized that life around the raising of a child, I think that's a very beautiful model of life. And it should be absolutely, it must be open to queer people. But it's not the only beautiful model of a life. It's right. not the only valuable model. Right. Yeah, no, I think I had a similar conversation. I, might, I, I could be misremembering, but with uh, Matilda Bernstein Sycamore. Hmm. And it was closer to, I want to say, if I'm, I mean, I've been doing this for a decade now, but I think it was closer to gay marriage being legalized. Right. And so that was kind of in the air. And if I'm being honest, I think I was like so excited. I think rightfully so, you know, so excited to see that affirmation and recognition happen. But uh, I think as Matilda was saying, that there's more to it. She was kind of counterpointing. Uh, yeah. as I recall, and yeah. kind of opening my eyes to the fact that it wasn't the whole story. Yeah, and like, and I think we can do both. You know, I think we can celebrate it. I mean, it was, it did feel radically affirming when the Supreme Court decision came down. I mean, I was amazed by how moved I was as someone who does not intend to get married. I mean, if I get married, it will be, you know, my partner is Spanish, and if we get married, it will be because I need to flee America and go to Europe, you know, and I need a citizenship. Um, but I don't have any affective, like it doesn't, it doesn't have any symbolic or affective meaning for me, marriage. Um, but it did have symbolic and affective meaning for me that all of the sudden in my country, um, this right was made available to me. It did feel like a kind of recognition of shared humanity. Now, one of the devastating things about the fact that so that I mean, such a huge um, percentage of the resources of queer activism went into marriage for so long is that, um, you know, Americans, like many Americans I talk to are so shocked when they hear that, yes, one can marry one's spouse in any state in the United States. But in the majority of those states, you can be fired from your job for having done so on Monday, you know. Um, so, like, there's so much work to be done mm. before queer people have anything like equal citizenship in the United States. And the focus on marriage, I mean, one of the devastating things it's done is it has blinded us to um, – really, really crucial ways in which queer people are still second or third class citizens in this country. Yeah. It's like, it's like, oh, it's done. Yeah, that's right. It's not done. It's yeah. not close to done. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So can I ask a couple questions about cruising? A couple sure. more questions. Yeah. Um, like the mechanics of it. You're out, you're in the park or whatever, you're with like the bathroom, wherever it is, and you're cruising and you meet somebody, you're face to face with them, but you're not into it. Like, like do, you, like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, how does the rejection process happen? Do, do you get rejected? Is it pretty open? You're just like, we're going to go with it no matter what? Or are you like, you know what, pass? <laughs> yeah, no, people, you know, you pass all the time. I mean, what's, what's, ex and, and that can be, you know, and, and people have, I mean, when I say that cruising is a space that sort of makes the whole gamut of human affective and emotional and ethical response available. That also means it's a place where people can treat each other shittily. Um, and it's also a place where people get their feelings hurt. It's also a place that um, like any human space can accommodate violence. Um, so, you know, all of these things happen. What's exciting to me about cruising. What's exciting to me about analog cruising, like old fashioned cruising, like <laughs> bodies in the woods or in a bathroom. 
um, or in a video store or wherever, as opposed to like Grinder. I was going to um, say the internet has probably upended or changed everything. Well, you know, it's interesting. So yeah, lots of people talk as though sort of analog cruising doesn't exist anymore, but it does. And it, you know, it often intermingles with digital cruising in a really fascinating way so that people will be in the woods cruising and they'll have their phones on, you know, searching Grinder and, um, that's interesting to me, this kind of anytime spaces are multiplied and possibilities are multiplied, that feels exciting to me. But, you know, with Grindr, like, I don't understand, like, these filters that you can use on Grindr, you know, all of these ways that you can just, um, you know, set an algorithm searching for the object of your desire. I mean, that seems so crazy to me because it it just seems like a fundamentally wrong model of desire because it suggests that we can know what we desire. And to me, the radical thing about desire and the reason that desire is such a fantastic narrative device is that it is constantly surprising us. Mm. And, you know, I think desire and pleasure can be extraordinary teachers Um in the way that, for instance, you know, I might have some idea of my type, although actually I don't. Whenever someone asks me that question, I feel so flummoxed yeah, because I don't have a, I don't think I have yeah, a type. Yeah, I mean, you know, but the thing is, like, when you're cruising, you know, someone who maybe like their, I don't know, headless torso on grinder might not do it for you, but like the sound of their their voice or the way that they smell or the way that they move. Like all of those things can turn you on and you can be surprised and you could be you can be brought into um, sort of social situations and affective alignments that you wouldn't that you would never have willed yourself into. Like I am interested in desire as a narrative device because it seems to me pretty much unique in the way that, you know, desire like gives us a way to engage our wills. So I desire something and then I'm going to seek it. And, you know, and we know that people will go to sort of radical links and, and, you know, people will do crazy things to get what they desire. So it feels like this very willed endeavor, but I don't get to choose the object of my desire. Like desire is something that happens to me. It always feels so it feels at once like it is something before which I am absolutely prone, absolutely subject. And yet then it makes me this kind of supercharged agent. And that's like, I mean, I think that's why falling in love is such a great or falling into desire is um, it's a really great place to begin a story. Yeah. Well, no, it's like it's riveting to read if it's done well. It can take you out of the, you know, right off the page if it's not, I think, mm. um, which is where the bad sex and fiction stuff comes from. But um, I guess that was one of the things that your your work uh, reminded me of. It's like, wow, like, why are more people not writing about this? Like, we all love sex, but I guess not everybody is able to do it, which brings me to the question of, like, h- how do you write? about sex in a way that's um, effective yeah. for a reader? Like, do you have any kind of sense of rules? Is it purely intuitive? You know, like, everything matters. Word choice, um, uh, everything, the, the mm. rhythm of language. Like, what are you after when you are, um, like, chasing the click, like chasing that right. feeling of, like, the sentence is done? Right. And how do you make sure that you, you know, guard against... 
you know, the things that make sex writing seem silly or, you know, bring people off the page laughing to themselves. So, you know, so I've just been talking for a long time about ways in which like sex seems to me like this unique phenomenon, kind of uniquely useful for writers and what it can let us do and explore. All of that is true. I also believe equally, and this is, you know, there is no resolving these beliefs and and I'm not really interested in resolving them. Like, I also believe sex is a phenomenon like any other. It's no harder to write than anything else. I mean, almost anything is impossible to write. And like writing the experience of eating a muffin is devastatingly difficult. And in fact, the challenges it presents are the same as the challenges that sex presents. I think the virtues of sex, of good sex writing are the virtues of good writing, which is, you know, an eagerness for complexity, a um, sort of passion for exactitude, um, trying to see things as they are and not as we wish they were, or as we've been told they are, um, you know, and then, uh, avoiding cliche. Um, you know, many of the bad sex writing awards, which I hate the bad sex awards. And I keep putting out into the ether that I would really like to win it because I would love to go and accept the award award in person and give a speech in which I tell them what assholes they are. Um, but a lot of those awards are given because of bad metaphors. Well, the bad metaphor is a bad metaphor in whatever realm of, of experience. You know, most of the metaphors we use are bad. And um, I don't think writing sex is any harder than writing anything well. Hmm. And so why, why do you hate the bad sex award so much? You think it because it humiliates people? I think, I think yes, because it... Um, you know, it's the whole way it works. First of all, I think it creates a huge disincentive to write sex. Right. And, um, you know, I think, well, I'll tell you. So I think it's really important to write sex. I mean, I, I will never tell a writer what they should write. I, that's anathema to me. I think people should make the art they need to make, and none of us gets to tell anyone what to make. But it feels very important to me to write sex. And it feels to me that literature has a role to play in this cultural moment and in the way that our culture thinks about sex. Because, I mean, we live at a moment in which, to a degree utterly unprecedented in the history of the world, we are inundated in images of bodies and images of sexualized bodies. You can go on the internet and find anything. It's I mean, what infinite. A, what, it's infinite. But it seems to me that our culture also suffers from a dearth of representation of what I call embodiedness, which is the idea of bodies with consciousness. So I am very much pro-porn. I'm not anti-porn at all. Um, you don't think it's you don't think it has a toxic effect on people if they're watching too much of it? No, I don't. Um, or not in any easy quantifiable way, and certainly not in any way that is distinct from all of the other things we watch and consume. Um, you know, so I don't think like, I mean, if, if we wanted to try to start um, changing our media and our consumption of media, I mean, violence for me is way before representation of sex in terms of what like corrupts our souls. But it is true. I think something that does 
worry me about much of internet pornography and especially much of internet pornography that's engaged in a kind of arms race of extremity is that it seems like um, great links have been gone to in representing these sexualized bodies to expunge personhood from those bodies, to, to make them into objects um, and to make us forget that they are objects with consciousness, um, that they are subjects with consciousness. Literature is the best technology we have for the communication of the experience of consciousness for communicating the, what someone else's existence feels like from the inside. It seems to me that um, literary representation of sex, representation of sex um, sort of um, that makes use of the resources of the literary imagination has a real sort of role of intervention to play in such a cultural moment. Um, like I want to write sex, all kinds of sex, sex in all kinds of registers and all kinds of affective worlds, but always sex between bodies that have consciousness and therefore sex that is an act of communication. Um, so anything that discourages writers from doing the research, you know, um, I do think, you know, making art is a kind of research. It's a it's an attempt to produce knowledge. So anything that wants to anything that that serves as a disincentive for writers to do the research of what it's like not just to be a sexual, not just to represent sexual bodies, but to represent sexual embodiedness. Um, I think that's a bad thing in the culture. I think it is terrible to take often works of art that are very serious. Um, by real artists and take two or three lines out of context and publish them in the guardian and humiliate that artist. I think that is grotesque. Um, and then I also think each year it promulgates this false idea that sex cannot be written. Well, like what a grotesque waste of resources. Why do we have a bad sex award and not a good sex award? I was going to say we should have you a know, good sex I award. I think we should. But, you know, I would love to win that award so that I could go and tell them what assholes they are. Um, you know, we need to be having a conversation about, um, I mean, especially in this moment where we are having such a reckoning around sex and around toxic sexual cultures that have gone unexamined. Um, art has a role to play, but, you know, pulling out some bad metaphors and pointing at them and laughing at them, um, that just gets in the way of that work. Hmm. You know what? I have to cop to, I think I've like maybe tweeted or retweeted those, have laughed, but you've, you know, that's eye opening. Yeah. Let's, um, let's all be anti, bad sex award let's let's shut like i'm very anti-cancel culture but that is one cancel culture campaign i will get behind 100 percent. let's get them canceled no i mean i think like uh just on the basis of having to encourage people to address sex more in their work because it really is absent i think it often is, you know i mean there is a beloved a brilliant brilliant writer at iowa whose view of how sex should be written is the characters sit down on the couch, white space. 
the next morning, you know, and, and that's how a lot of literature and look, I mean, those books can be great books. I'm again, I'm, I would never want to say people have to write something, but, um, that should not be our only or our primary model for addressing sex in our lives. Well, and I think too, like you talk about the embodied, um, the embodiedness of it. That's a really good point because sex can be funny. Oh, it can be, it's hilarious. It's, yeah. There's so much like, so, you know, there's so much that happens mentally that the only way to really ever portray that would be, or to portray that really well would be in literature. I mean, I guess you could do it with voiceover in a movie, but that's going to get cumbersome. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting. Like I, I, I mean, I do think it can be filmed really well. And I think there are some, um, there are some film and sometimes in pornography, you know, I think, I think that pornography can be art and, um, you know, I think there are pornographic scenes out there that do capture sort of the humor and the gravitas of sex. Um, but there are also filmed versions. So I think, you know, uh, a couple that just jump out, there's a Belgian filmmaker who's very brilliant named Laurent Micheli, whose film, his first film is called, I think it's called Even Lovers Get the Blues. And it's available on Netflix and Amazon, you know, the streaming services. He films sex so brilliantly as like this very rich, uh, he films very different kinds of sex, but as this very rich social interaction. And then another kind of wondrous, I think, representation of um, sexual sociality is uh, the wonderful movie, the Paul Thomas Anderson movie, Punch Drunk Love with Adam Sandler. And um, I think that gets the humor of sex. Really, you know, what, you mean the scene where he's like, I want to smash your exactly. face. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think that's, I like, I love that scene so much. Yeah. And I think, you know, that gets at, you know, because it registers both the intensity of feeling and, you know, a kind of humor that ironizes or, um, sort of takes the thread out of that feeling. I think it's just, I think it's marvelous. I think it's so good. It's such an odd film. Like the, like it works somehow. I, I think it's brilliant. It's like I, a magic trick. I think he's one of the great filmmakers. I think that's a brilliant, brilliant movie. Yeah, I know. He's awesome. Um, so I want to talk before, before you go, cause I know you got to get off to your reading. I want to talk to you just about, uh, briefly about the arc of your career as a prose writer, because mm-hmm. it has been, um, it's been the kind of like you had the kind of debut that I think a lot of literary writers dream of. It was mm-hmm. critically acclaimed, like it made some noise in a culture where it's hard to cut through. Mm. Um, and then this book has been equally, if not uh, more, well received. So, can you just talk a little bit about that transition from going from being a poet and um, somebody who's into opera to deciding to write uh, prose? Like, you know, how that happened, and then how you got into print. Right. Well, the, the first part of that sort of the change from writing poetry to writing prose is really mysterious to me. Um, I don't know why it happened. It did not feel willed. I did not make a decision. I, my first semester in Bulgaria, I finished a manuscript of poems. I put it in a drawer. I thought I wouldn't write for six months or a year. And then I started hearing sentences that I knew were not broken into lines. And, you know, I started writing in my notebook and I really thought of it. It wasn't until I got to the second to last scene of the whole novel that I thought of it as a novel. Um, When I sort of 
labeled it to myself. I thought of it as writing sentences. And being in Bulgaria, um, very far away from literary culture, I had, you know, some years before that, I, I had done half of a PhD at Harvard, where I felt like I was very much at the heart of American literary culture, and that came to feel quite stifling. Um, and it was a relief to then, I taught high school for three years in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and then for four years in Sophia. And in Why, Sof why Sophia? Um, really, a chance. I wanted to... I wanted to go abroad. I had always wanted to live um, outside of the United States, and I had never had. I had never been outside the United States until the summer after my first year teaching in Ann Arbor when I chaperoned a group of kids to France. That was my first time leaving the U.S. Um, and I had always thought I would be someone who would live abroad. And here I was, what, 31 years old, and I had barely been abroad. And so I signed up with a placement agency, and there were a couple of jobs, and the job at the American College of Sofia in Bulgaria seemed like the most interesting job um, because I knew I would be working with excellent students, um, Bulgarian kids from all over the country who take a pretty tough entrance exam to get in and who are very motivated. Um, and also, unlike a lot of international schools where you kind of live in a compound or you live in a sort of in an artificial environment, I would be living in the city. And um, that felt important to me. And then I just fell in love with the place. Um, but, you know, uh, living in Sofia, writing. So I, I was a full-time high school teacher. It was a very intense job. And so I got up every morning and I wrote from 4.30 to 6.30. And um, that time writing in the very early morning in this country, you know, um, where I felt very much like a foreigner in a place where if I was not teaching, I taught in English, but on weekends or during breaks, I would go days without speaking English. Um, and that made writing. Wait, English. What did you speak? I spoke Bulgarian. You did. You um, got fluent. I got very, 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 very proficient. Um, you know, many of the people, and this is one of the things about cruising, um, you know, cruising was wonderful in the beginning because I didn't need language. Like the codes of cruising are universal, I found. So I found that I was fluent in these bathrooms in a way that I was not anywhere else in but the country. Are there like hand signals or like? There's, yeah, I mean, I mean, sort of bodily signals, yeah. Um, it felt immediately familiar to me. Like I knew all of the codes. They are nonverbal. Um, and, but then as I gained the language, um, you know, many – so English is very widely spoken among um, many people, younger people and people of a certain class in Sofia. Um, but many of the people cruising these bathrooms didn't speak English. And so the fact that I could speak Bulgarian um, just gave me access to a completely different world. But it also made English feel private and feel charged in a way it hadn't before. And some combination of those things, being in Bulgaria, maybe the amount of information I wanted to try to get on the page, like I was trying to think about this place that I had fallen in love with and where I was having these very intense experiences. And then the, ch the qualitative change of my relationship to my own language. Maybe it was all of those things that made me a prose writer. Yeah. Um, I can see how that could like uncork things. And yeah. Um, you know, and it was, you know, but uh, like, I'm so grateful to have been a poet, both because of, you know, whatever qualities it gives to the prose that I write, but also because, you know, for 20 years, I was writing really seriously in utter obscurity. And 
that was great, you know? And I feel, I mean, it didn't feel great at the time. Like it, it, it can't feel great until you know, it's going to end, I think. Um, but like, that was great. You know, um, the freedom of it, the freedom of it. And also just the education in what the real value of literature is, which has nothing to do with what happens in the three months after a book comes out or the award season. I mean, that has nothing to do with the real life of literature. What, what is the real value? Well, the real value of literature is what happened when I was 15 years old in Kentucky and pulled Giovanni's room down from a shelf, you know, and um, found in it for the first time a representation of desires like mine, of lives like mine that were accommodating of dignity um, and the kind of intense sense I had of having been found, of of sort of having been accommodated into a vision of the human race. Um, that's the real life of literature and no publicist can engineer it. Um, but what about for the the working writer? Well, for the working writer, I mean, I think, so you asked a question about getting into print. Um, I mean, I wrote all of what belongs to you when I was in Bulgaria. And, you know, at the end of that process, it was my seventh year teaching high school. And I felt myself um, reaching the end of what I could do as a high school teacher. I felt that if I kept teaching high school, I would burn out. I would become bitter. I would not be able to be a good teacher um, just because it was so intense. And I also felt like... Um, I had discovered this new dimension of my life as a writer writing this novel and that um, I wanted to recenter my life with, with writing at the heart. And that if I didn't do that, I would never find out what I would be capable of as an artist. And it felt like urgently important to me to try to have a life that would allow me to find that out. And so I needed to, to, to get out of high school teaching even though I loved high school teaching, I miss it very much. Um, and then also I had this book. I knew that I wanted the book to have some kind of life in the world. And I had no idea what that would mean. I had no idea what an agent was, what an agent did, um, how to get an agent, how to get an agent from Bulgaria. Like I, I just had no idea how you got a book into print. And when I thought about ways that I could accomplish both of my goals to reset my life with writing at the center and to get a kind of professional orientation in writing, um, I mean, the last thing I wanted to do was to do another graduate degree. The last thing I wanted to do was to go back to the United States. But I applied to the Iowa Writers Workshop. It's the only MFA program I applied to um, because I thought it would be a way of doing both those things. And... um, I was accepted, and uh, I remember when I got the acceptance, and um, also got news that I that I got a fellowship that would allow me not to to sort of have a break from teaching for the first time in a decade, and uh, I felt my ambivalence give way. I thought I will go to Iowa, and Iowa did do those things. It allowed me to do those things. And you came book in hand. I came book in hand. Did you, I, and did you refine it when you were there? Not really, no. Um, I mean, so my first, the first workshop I took was Sam Chang's novel workshop, which was, I mean, I so I went to Iowa with those two goals. From Iowa, I got a lot more um, than what I expected to get. Um, I was part of an extraordinary cohort that included people like Jamel Brinkley and uh-huh. Fatma Mirza and Novuya Shuma, like brilliant writers. And um, 
Sam Chang was an absolutely brilliant teacher. And in her novel workshop, I put up the last third of the novel. Um, but it didn't significantly change then. Um, I sold the novel my second semester. And then the most intense... How did that go? That was just like you got an agent while you were at Iowa? Yeah. Well, so I didn't meet my agent at Iowa. What I did... So, you know, at Iowa, a lot of agents come through and you can like meet with them for 15 minutes or whatever and, you know, shove some pages in their face. I found those meetings really unhelpful. Hmm. Like you're sweaty and nervous and... It's like speed dating. Yeah. It's it's like... (laughs) I mean, it's pretty meaningless, but they also do an hour-long Q&A where you can ask them any question. And I would just shamelessly go to those and put up my hand and say, what is your job? What do you do? You know, like just the dumbest questions that I think a lot of people would be embarrassed to ask. But those, those were the questions I needed. I found my agent through um, a fellow writer, um, and but it was because of those meetings, those Q&A sessions, that I knew what questions to ask of the agents I was talking to and how to make the decision. And um, and then, you know, the, the, the miraculous thing that happened to me that changed my life was that Anna Stein decided to take me on as a client, and it was like, I mean, you know, she signed me and she wanted one change to the book, which was a change of title. And I spent like a week changing the title. And then um, she sold the book in 48 hours. Wow. And, you know, that was a crazy experience. And then the real, the most intense education I had as a prose writer, um, because the the next great good fortune I had was um, that I found the right editor, Mitzi Angel at FSG, who is an an absolute genius. And um, she made me work so hard that summer. And she poured so much of her own energy into trying to make the book as good as it could be. And it was, that was an extraordinary education. Like she just, just in the way she would mark up pages, she showed me all of my bad habits, all of my crutches, all of my shortcuts. Hmm. And she just like, didn't let me get away with it. You know, she would never suggest language. She would never rewrite but she would like, I mean, she would put X's through whole pages and there would be like three pages and she would say, rewrite this. So it's a quarter of a page, you know, and we ended up without doing any structural changes, without any scenes being changed or characters being altered or cut or added. We took an 83,000 word manuscript, which is not a very long novel and cut and rewrote to take out 18,000 words. Um, so it was like a radical act of compression that was really just like getting it in focus. And um, I learned so much. I mean, I learned more than in, you know, I did an MFA in poetry when I was a baby. I learned more than in either of my MFA programs, just that summer working with Mitzi Angel on editing the book. And she also edited this one. She did. I mean, which was also really, really lucky because she left FSG and went to Faber and Faber. And then just as my book was queued up to be edited, she came back to FSG and, um, and took me back on. And I feel really grateful. Well, well, I enjoyed it and, uh, sort of blown away just listening to you talk like you're as eloquent in person as you are on the page. Oh, that's very nice. And, uh, I congratulate you on all the success you're having. This book's getting a wonderful reception. And um, I wish you all the very best. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. All right, folks, there you go. That is Garth Greenwell. His new book is called Cleanness. It's available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. You can find Garth online at garthgreenwell.com. You can follow him 
on Facebook. You can follow him on Twitter, at Garth Greenwell. The book, again, is called Cleanness. Out there now from FSG, go get your copy. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music there at the top of the interview. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to support this show, if you like the program, if you listen regularly and you want to tip your server, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. This uh, podcast has its own app, The Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. It's a free app. Everything's free, by the way. All of the episodes, more than 600 and counting, it's all available for free. The app is out there. That, too, is free. It's all free. What do you think about that? I could see myself with a dad bag. I'm not opposed. Just need to get like habituated to it, you know? I feel like I need a new look. I think what I'm trying to tell you is that I need a makeover. Like I've been wearing sweatpants for a long time. <laughs> I kind of feel like I need some new pants. And I don't want blue jeans because blue jeans, now that I've worn sweatpants for this long, it's like putting burlap on. I can't deal with it. Blue jeans are a complete lie. They're terribly uncomfortable. And don't even come at me with, oh, but you should get the kind with stretch fabric and... No. Put on my cloud knit sweatpants for even a day and uh, you will understand. Who's on the program next week? Let me see here. Oh. Emily Nemens is my guest. She is the editor-in-chief of the Paris Review, and she has a new novel... She has a new novel out called The Cactus League. Emily Nemens. Next week. Okay. (laughs) 